Welcome to Color Me Conscious. We have more in common than difference. Our intention is to explore the intersectionality that unites us and build consciousness about the layers of oppression we all carry. Color Me Conscious, where consciousness is at the forefront of the discussion about race. extra special extra fun we've got a special guest with us here today we've got a little round of applause for our md candidate from the joint uc berkeley ucsf medical program dr rachel field so um, Rachel is a third year medical student in the UC Berkeley UCSF Joint Medical Program and her master's research focused on how medical education teaches students to think about race and reinforces racism in medicine. Ah! Ooh, cleansing breath, cleansing breath. <laughs> wow. So um, actually I met Rachel at a um, council meeting, so I sit on the Chancellor's Council for Campus Climate Change and Inclusion, and Rachel did a presentation called Managing Whiteness. Dun dun dun! <laughs> And it Does was, this make your like white fragility shiver? Just, <laughs> just to think about that, right? So she she came before the vice chancellor of diversity and outreach, and the executive vice chancellor and provost, and a lot of other deans and chairs to talk about managing whiteness and white fragility and what that means in medical education, right? So Rachel, why don't you tell us a little bit more about how you got here to do this work? Okay, thanks so much for having me. It's a real honor to be here. I feel very excited. I also feel uh, very nervous to be here. Um, a little uh, widely fragile, like I'm going to say something <laughs> wrong and racist and embarrass myself or offend someone. So I uh, just want to put that out there. Disclaimer. Disclaimer. <laughs> you might be offended. <laughs> I think that's a fear that a lot of white people have about having conversations about race, yeah. though. It's not wanting to look racist or not wanting to sound racist or like the reality is we all have these underlying race like racist, racist beliefs mm. and so when those subconscious things come out like mm -hmm. we don't want to be outed but the reality is like we're doing the work and actually having a conversation about it and I just want to say how much I respect you for standing up and putting this really um, controversial subject in the forefront thank you and to do it through your education work right yeah. to, to impact an institution at the same time Right? I think that's so powerful. Yeah, I mean, we've talked briefly before about um, health disparities and the way that racism really, like, um, is played out when you look at health outcomes for people of color, women of color, particularly black women, and yet when we look at those things, it's funny, like, because also in nursing school, you know, we talk about the fact that it happens, but, like, how how is it institutionalized like like we can see the evidence of it but we don't really look at the how is it continuing to be perpetuated yeah. and that is exactly what you're looking at and yeah. what you're talking about yeah and you know as a medical student uh, I, I come into medical school with these ideas already I I have I've lived I'm 33 I lived 30 years 
absorbing all these messages mm -hmm. um, about reinforcing white supremacy, reinforcing negative stereotypes mm -hmm. about people mm -hmm. of color, and medical school reinforces that. Mm -hmm. And you know, we know that uh, medicine and clinical practice contributes to health outcomes. Yes. And uh, the way that one of the ways it does that is by reinforcing future doctors' racist ways of thinking. And that's really why I came to this work, because I wanted to look at how does my medical school experience teach me to think in a certain way that's harmful for my patients. And um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of work on how to train students to be you know, more culturally humble doctors, how to be structurally competent, these sort of sexy new ways. All of, these taglines, what was it for yeah. nursing? It's culturally competent care. Yeah. And they like really, yeah, we'll talk about things. Buzzwords, um, buzzwords. Little buzzwords there. Mm -hmm. But I could totally relate to what you're saying. And like, I had a conversation recently with a friend who was, I was telling her how one of the questions on the NCLEX, the NCLEX is like the licensing exam that you take after you complete your degree in nursing, and one of the questions that was on my um, my study guide was completely racist. It was yeah. really, it was completely racist in like the assumption that was made. It was a, it was about um, Hispanic women and like, um, like sanitary habits around like menstruation. And um, it was offensive. <laughs> it honestly was very offensive. And it's interesting because, as you point out, like part of um, like being a, a healthcare provider um, or a caregiver, it is they do teach you how to think. Yeah. Right, because it's about critical yeah. thinking, and you apply these different, you know, um, like kind of frameworks. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's really fascinating that you're actually taking a little delve in there and saying, hey, hmm, this right here, <laughs> there's a problem with that. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, especially as I'm starting my third year in medical school, so I'm starting my clinical training, I'm on the wards, I'm in the clinics, and I'm totally lost. Mm -hmm. I'm a medical student, I know, no, I mean, I have some idea what's happening, but I'm still really new, and medical... They, they try and teach you in medicine ways to approach disease processes, ways to approach patients, and how to look for clues. You know, you want to see this pattern. This pattern represents potentially this disease process right. or this, um, you know, condition or syndrome. And race ends up being a little piece of that puzzle. Mm -hmm. And it can be helpful, you know, people's lived experiences of their racial identities does influence what happens to their bodies. And we need to approach it with nuance. It's, it's nuanced. It can't just be a person is this race and therefore they're, they are going to have this disease, although that's sort of, maybe it's not that blatant, but like they are more likely to have this disease potentially, but let's talk about why. The term genetic predisposition comes up a lot when yeah. you talk about racial groups and different ethnic groups mm -hmm. and people coming from different regions of the world and right. when we're trying to provide healthcare um, racial you know things do come up yeah. and it's important to have that but that nuance factor that little added humility of understanding that we're not just one thing mm -hmm. and there is not just one determining factor for anybody's outcome when they're presenting to you Definitely. You know, with a yeah. Well, I just like to bring up the fact that I mean, it's been studied pretty, free, like, pretty in depth that the um, genetic variability, like, amongst.
people of the same race yeah. is yeah. very wide. It's more broad than right. Right. like like you could clump people up by so many other things that have genetic similarities and race would not be a factor. Oh uh, yeah. Basically, but like we categorize it by race and then we say okay this is going to be one of the ways that we separate and determine you know what health outcomes are and when it comes to um, I think shared like disease processes and health outcomes there is definitely an argument about like um, genetic versus environmental factors and the fact that there's a lot of social and environmental things that happen that are shared experiences amongst people from racial groups right. that probably have more to do with those health outcomes right. as opposed to a genetic predisposition. Right. I mean, and we know that those things can feed each other, right? Exactly. There's talk about nature versus nurture. I think it's more nature and nurture. Like, mm -hmm. those things come together. I mean, there is your genetic predisposition for anything, but then there's also, like, the factors of your environment that are largely influenced by your immediate family when you're first being formed, right? Obviously, it starts right. with your mother and then onto your immediate network when you're a child, mm -hmm. right? So all of those factors are influencing your diet, they're influencing what you're inhaling, what if you yes, live in a city, if you exactly. live in a rural area, if you you know get exposed to education at an early age, or if you don't get quality education, mm -hmm. all of those things make impacts on your quality of life and your health, right? Absolutely, yeah. right. and even chronic stress right. uh, as a result of experiencing racism right. and the impacts of you know cortisol, heightened levels of cortisol over years and years yeah. of time, you know, and how that has like basically a um, like a cascade of events that results in um, so, diseases that are higher amongst African Americans. And I think it's really interesting when we talk about this juxtaposition of uh, disparate health outcomes for people of color, and we could just along the same lines talk about health outcomes for non-people of color, for white people. Mm -hmm. But do, do we include white, we've had this in previous episodes, do we include white in the diversity conversation. Because right. there's this assumption that when you say people of color, that excludes white people. Right. That it means that there's white people and there's everybody else, and there's right. this normal sense of health outcomes for white people, and everyone else is judged against that. And if right. you don't have that, then you therefore have a disparity or a lack of some sort. I think that's a that's a sort of a negative perspective to take on it, when instead we could include everybody. Because right. like, as you're saying, we have more in common than we have in difference genetically. We right. from race to race, we actually right. have more in common. You and I could have more in common than right. you know uh, a black person that's sitting next to you. Right. So uh, there could be a there could be a black man sitting right next to me, and I could have more in common with you exactly. than that person. Genetic. We just look at the actual factors of my genetic makeup, right? right? So how do we include white people into these conversations and make sure that when we're talking about how we interact with each other, how we treat each other, and what the systems that we live under, mm -hmm. um, how they influence our quality of life, how do we address whiteness as an issue, as a, instead of saying, well, the, all of the disparities that people of color have to face, let's just focus on those disparities. Eh, let's take a step back. Let's yeah. look at the bigger picture. Because people of color have disparities based on a white supremacist structure that everyone lives in, exactly. and we know that white people are in this structure and are also impacted by the white supremacist pillars that our institutions in this country uphold. Exactly. Right. So I actually wanted to have you to address that a little bit more and talk about what are the meanings of whiteness um, and then how does that impact other people when we talk about managing whiteness and we talk about white fragility. Mm -hmm. How can that impact white people and how does that impact people of color? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think listening to you uh, talk about how we separate out and we have just these two huge categories of white and non-white, mm -hmm. white and people of color, is very much comes from this way of thinking of white as what is normal, standard, and everything else is a deviation from mm. that. And that, that comes out of racist thinking in the 1800s, mm -hmm. which, you know, thought of white as the evolutionary pure, mm, and right. that everything different than what was identified as white was a sort of step away from this purity. Eugenics. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> seriously. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So why don't we, can we give a, a, a flat definition to white fragility for our viewers, for everyone who is unfamiliar with any of these terms, that what do we mean when we say white fragility? Yeah, I, so white fragility is a, on one hand, an emotional response. Uh -huh. And it is this response that white people experience when they are confronted with how they participate and contribute to racism. Mm -hmm. And so that response is characterized by feelings such as shame, guilt, mm -hmm. defense, acting defensive, mm -hmm. um, pushing away, evading mm -hmm. responsibility. And I think it's important when we talk about white fragility to root it in this underlying investment with um, maintaining my white privilege. Mm. That white fragility is a, a kind of like a mechanism. It's a, a way to sort of um, be like, well, I'm not racist, to uh, push away this sort of um, label of being racist and therefore hide how I am complicit with racism, which is how I underlyingly protect my white privilege and my white advantage. Right, because yeah. you don't have to be aggressively racist to be complicit in racism. Absolutely You don't not. have to be proactively mm -hmm. racist or in the KKK actively <laughs> in yeah. order to perpetuate and be complicit to a white supremacist white supremacist narrative and um, you know institutions yeah and I feel like that's a conversation here in the Bay Area we have a lot where people are like oh those people over there mm. they're so ignorant yeah. they're yeah. so racist those guys right. yeah. not that's us true. though not us not us in this liberal Bay I'm Area I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more just about like how the um, defensiveness against like um, like acknowledging the racism that we have um, I'm wondering if you can say more about the way that it kind of can function to protect white privilege. Yeah, so there, I, th I think of it on two scales. I think of it that there is this interpersonal scale. So um, I'm having a conversation, for example, with a colleague of color, or I'm in a, a faculty meeting or an administrative meeting at UCSF. Mm -hmm. and. Um, my co-faculty are saying, hey, we need to invest more in um, recruiting and retaining faculty of color because we have... That's a big conversation. It's a huge conversation. Yeah. And if uh, my response is, we don't have money for that. Uh, mm. That's not a... The priority really is this thing over here. Mm. That's very subtle. Yeah. You know, it's I'm, a deflection. It's yeah. a deflection. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And one that if you don't have the vernacular to read through the lines, mm -hmm. you may take that response at face value and be like, well, we just don't have the money. But really, it's a comment on the values. It's a comment on the prioritization of what we're ready to spend money on yeah. and what we're ready to invest in. Yeah. 
because if you don't believe in the outcomes and the benefits of investing in that area or you're too afraid to lean into investigating it right like if just the thought of investigating the diversity or lack of diversity in your faculty and recruiting and retaining quality faculty of diverse backgrounds if that is too much for you in the position of power that you hold in the decision-making position I mean I can see why the conversation stops right there mm -hmm. and it's easy to kind of twist it to be about money mm -hmm. when it's really about your value set it's mm -hmm. really about your perspectives on who brings value and who doesn't bring value mm -hmm. to an institution? Yeah, yeah. Right? And who has the right to come in? Yeah, we need more, you know, HIV researchers. We mm -hmm. need more cancer. You know, and I'm not in these meetings. I don't know what they're saying. Mm -hmm. But uh, that is like a very sort of maybe potentially more subtle way of of uh, what it, deflecting. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the the sort of shutting down the conversation on the level of like, you know, um, I. I don't want to hear how I am racist, you know, and this happens for me with friends. Yeah. This happens with friends where, you know, a friend will be like, hey, like, this is something I'm thinking about and you said this thing and it hurt me. Mm. And I am so uncomfortable by that. I feel bad because I hurt my friend and I feel bad because I feel racist and that doesn't feel good. That doesn't sit with who I want to be inside. Is this a conversation between you and a friend who's of a different race? Yes, this is a conversation. I have a really good friend who's a woman of mixed race and there was a point in our relationship where she really started to explore that for herself mm. and I couldn't handle it. Okay. And I, she came back later after I had done a lot of work, this is years later, mm -hmm. and was like that was really hurtful for me. Yeah. And it took me a long time to see how I shut down the conversation. I didn't see her and who she was, who she was becoming as her more authentic self. Wow. And that's really hurtful. And to understand that it's really complex. It's complex for people who are of a singular racial background. Mm -hmm. I think it's a different layer of complexity for people who are multiracial, mm -hmm. right? Because you're seen one way. You're seen one way from greater society through this lens of the lighter you are, the better it is for you, right? Mm -hmm. But you yourself know that you're just as much your mother as you are your father. Mm -hmm. You're, you know, if you're if we're talking about a person who's both black and white, or someone who's black and Latino together, you're just as much your mother as you are your father, and there's there's nothing that the world can say that can change that about you. But it, mm -hmm. but it affects your everyday life because right. how you're perceived by other people. Right, can impact you and it can kind of influence your self view. If you don't have a really strong self view, Absolutely. if you weren't given a really strong um, self esteem level and particularly work on that. in adolescence. Yeah. Oh, I feel like yeah. particularly in adolescence yeah. and young adulthood, yeah. it's very like fragile to feel like, you know, you don't fit in in like any specific place mm -hmm. and like depending where you are and who you're around then like you can be perceived a certain way and mm -hmm. treated a certain way based on that but then you're kind of like this chameleon because mm -hmm. maybe you go somewhere else and it's totally different you know right and that comes up like I think you've said it a lot before it comes up for it's not just for mixed-race people it's not just for people of color it's for white people as well because mm -hmm. you're talking about you know your childhood and being around very openly racist white people but right. then also having community and friends that are not white and right. Feeling this kind of what we in the black community call code switching, where you kind of talk one way with one group of friends and you talk a different way with another group of friends, because 
you just have to sometimes, mm -hmm. but also that's what allows you to develop relationships. That's what allows mm -hmm. you to move forward. Like I have my professional voice and then I have my other voice, you know, and we all have to do it. We all have to do it. There's that. And then it's also Rachel and I were both talking about having grown up in some, somewhat rural communities in California and um, how like within rural white communities, you know, you can definitely see that there's a, there's kind of like a policing of whiteness, just like there's a policing of any group of who's in and who's out, who has claim to it and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. So um, there's, yeah, so many layers to it, definitely. Yeah. So yeah. what are, I mean, on that same vein, um, how does white fragility contribute to white supremacy? Yeah, um, I think that example of uh, you know, sort of stopping the conversation and stopping um, sort of advancement toward, um, you know, like hiring more faculty of color, for example. Um, white fragility inhibits progress. It inhibits changing the status quo because, one, oh, I'm a white person, I can't see what's around me. Mm. You know, uh, I'm so focused on trying to be present as not racist. That <laughs> I, I can't see that it's everywhere and that we're all in it. Because you don't see color. Yeah, oh no, I don't see color. You don't see, I don't see color. She can't tell the color of my shirt. I don't see color. I'm really colorblind. It's like legitimate, she's been diagnosed. <laughs> and apparently we all have because none of us are allowed to talk about race, you know, except for racists. Yeah, and that piece about not being able to talk about right? race. That's a big piece of this. Yeah. I can't say, like, I'm white. Oh, look, the way I'm expecting people to act in this environment is white. Mm. That I'm expecting people to act in a way that I think is culturally appropriate. Mm -hmm. And it's my way. And I can't mm. see that other people have another way of thinking about right. that. That I am the center of this. That's right. so deep. Right. That's and, really deep. And, and I'm just, like, I'm kind of curious because I know in the beginning we talked a little bit about um, just you starting this work while you're in med school and I'm just wondering you if you could go a little bit more into detail of like an example of the way that like what you learned in school was reinforcing this white supremacist culture. Yeah so one of the things um, we had talked about this um, at the beginning of this when we talked about like how you know you like that question you saw in your test and there's a lot of ways that because medicine wants to be succinct but inclusive of all the information you need to know because it's complex and there's a lot we don't know mm -hmm. that we take things like um, you know epidemiological data and we um, present it in a concise way so you know when I see when I'm taught on a lecture slide or in a textbook that the risk factors for diabetes include such and such and such and being Hispanic as someone who hasn't thought doesn't think go to immediately go to thinking about uh, health disparities I then think okay well then that must mean there's something about being Hispanic that makes you predisposed to diabetes mm. That's so subtle, but... It's really subtle. Wow. But you have to understand, like, a lot of the cultural history of what it is to be Hispanic mm -hmm. and all of those different factors that actually create the culture. Yeah. And then how they play out and manifest physically and medically 
to then lead you to a predisposition for diabetes. Yeah, so interesting because right? I'm just thinking about like the history of medicine mm -hmm. and like the perspective the of like of medicine is looking from a very Eurocentric perspective right. and and thinking about the fact that like it's white people who wrote the books, it's white people teaching it to other white people. And and all of that is kind of it's it's told through this filtered lens that is rarely if ever questioned. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for example, um, I was because so the example I gave you was in a textbook or in a classroom, but then students then enter the clinical realm mm -hmm. and you get training through your doctor when you walk into a room with a patient. Mm -hmm. Before you walk in the room, they may tell you something about the patient. You may have a, you know, you may tell, you may like uh, give sort of the download on what you need to know about the patient's condition. Mm -hmm. And that download may include certain um, stereotypes about that patient based on their identified race. Um, when you walk in the room, how the doctor treats the patient, mm -hmm. how the doctor potentially uh, navigates a situation where the patient may say something that's hurtful to a learner. That was something when I, the interviews that I did, a lot of faculty brought up patients saying things that are racist to learners and not knowing what to do in that situation. What does that mean? I don't even understand, like, the, the learner, the... Yeah, so um, a lot of clinical training is, um, as medical students, you sort of glom onto someone. You just shadow. You a, shadow. You shadow a senior resident or you shadow a full-on attending mm -hmm. for okay. a lot of the clinical work. Yeah, so then the, the, the student is being told something racist by the patient or like the example is that uh, you know the so the the treatment team walks into the room treatment team is a doctor for example a resident or like two residents and a medical student right and say the doctor is a white person or a person of color with more race privilege someone who you know uh, someone someone who is East Asian mm -hmm. and um, uh, there are a lot of much more uh, people of East Asian descent or who mm -hmm. identify as East Asian who are in practicing in medicine mm -hmm. and um, potentially to uh, you know perhaps a white patient who is used to seeing East Asian people who are East Asian as their doctor doesn't think twice about it but then there the student in the room is someone from a group that's underrepresented in medicine and the and the patient says something to the student that is um, uh, sort of like, uh, that's not my doctor, or I, I don't know what it is they right. would say. But a microaggression, microaggression or something insensitive, especially something that demeans the yes. person um, mm -hmm. from multiple perspectives. So, like, demeaning their status as a caregiver, mm -hmm. demeaning them maybe in their gender, if it's a female, or demeaning them because of their race. Yeah. Like, that actually can happen a lot. I mean, give good care. Exactly. Yeah. Like questioning your ability to even provide information to me as a patient. Right? Or because, to be there. Right. Why are you even here? Mm -hmm. I mean, but it happens a lot I mean, teaching hospitals, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, actually, just last week I went to a gynecologic appointment and one of the questions the medical assistant asked me when she brought me into the room was, do you mind if the doctor brings a medical student in with them? <laughs> do you mind, and do you mind if the medical student um, does the procedure or does the exam Okay. with the doctor's supervision so that so because of my background in medical education and in medical education administration I understand the value yeah. of a medical student or a resident doing the exam it's value to me it's value to that person's education yeah. and it's value to the doctor who's supervising right, right. everybody gains something from that but if you don't have that 
that background of knowledge, you may just be like, who is this person? You're not my doctor. I don't know. I don't know you. You don't get to tell me anything about my body. And then you get layers of otherness on top of it. Exactly. And then people's right. underlying right. beliefs come just to the surface. Add in any isms so and I'm there you go. I'm wondering then like how the impact that could potentially happen based on like the way that the um, attending um, or the, you know, white people in the room um, or those with more privilege, how they respond to that patient's microaggression. You know, mm -hmm. do they just like let it slide? You know, do they come to the defense of the learner that is, you know, being uh, aggressed? Mm -hmm. What is like kind of the feedback or where were you going with the scenario? Yeah. So um, in the interviews I had with faculty, they brought up feeling uncertain about what to do in that situation. That that's a tool as a white person or a person of color with race, more race privilege that they don't know how to act in that way. How do I show up as an ally? Yeah. They're like, I don't know. Yeah. And then in some ways are complicit with racism. Yeah, you don't say anything. Fuck. How hard? <laughs> no, it's but true. that's real. But that's real. Because yeah. a lot of people come from, and they have this intense reaction to it of just like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to oh, say. Yeah. That actually came up in the um, uh, what was the allyship means action? The mm -hmm. uh, the yeah. session we did a couple of uh, months ago, where yeah. one of the very first people to speak up was a white woman, and mm -hmm. she was like in her um, probably like late 40s early 50s and she just was like I don't know like what to do in those moments mm -hmm. and like I don't know how to show up as an ally mm -hmm. and um, I think that it's interesting as a generational perspective yeah. because mm -hmm. um, I was then like watching a podcast with some of my friends and like I have a friend um, she's like in her late 20s and she's white and we're watching it and she's just like she had to pause on the youtube channel she's like wait a minute she's like she doesn't know how to react like like how do you not react right. you know and it's such a generational thing i think with like the me too era and like mm -hmm. the fact that we are just like a generation that's like we're ready to say something we're mm -hmm. ready to make changes and we need people like you doing research like this mm -hmm. to educate both people who feel that they can respond and will respond but maybe haven't thought through all of the layers that come into it because showing up as an ally is um, multi-layered when it comes to not just wanting to be that white savior and mm -hmm. you know not wanting to like hijack the conversation and make it about us yeah mm. so um so I mean you bring up a really good point how do you do it? Yeah. How do you do it? So you know what we're going to do? We're going to have to pause right here because we are out of time for this episode. And in our next episode, Dr. Fields is going to tell us a little bit more about what to do, how to help yourself in those complex situations, how to address white fragility um, in yourself as well as in white people if you are a person of color when you see it, when you hear it. Um, so join us next time. This is Mylika and Myra, and you know, <laughs> we're Rachel. And we'll be back next time. Thank you. Thank for you. And if we made you think and you'd like to continue the conversation, visit our website, www.colormeconsciouspodcast.com, and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Color Me Conscious Podcast. <laughs>